pressure creates diamonds. We've wanted diamonds without pressure. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Profile Podcast. I'm Sam Hales, one of the presenters and producers of this show. And if you're a regular listener, you will know that what we do here on The Profile is we take a different Christian each and every week and we find out about their life, faith and testimony. We ask them about life growing up, about how their Christian faith has made a difference, what they're up to today. The full profile treatment is what we would normally do with a guest. Well, we're not doing that today for one very good reason, and that is we've already done it. Mark Sayers was a guest on the show a few years ago, so if you scroll down through your podcast feed, you'll hear my conversation with Mark Sayers. Today, we've got something a little bit different, and that is because Mark is many things. He's a pastor, he's an author, he's a popular podcaster. But one of the things Mark is, is he's a cultural commentator. And what that means is that he provides Christian commentary on all sorts of different issues in our world today. And so we wanted to grab the opportunity to sit down with Mark and ask him about current real world events. So what you're going to hear today on this special edition is Tim Betchevay speaking to Mark Sayers about the war in Ukraine, coronavirus, mental health, burnout, leadership, and what renewal might look like for the church and the world. It's a positive and uplifting interview dealing with all sorts of wide-ranging themes. I really hope you enjoy it. Without any further ado, let's listen in. This is Tim Betchevay speaking to the Australian church leader and author, Mark Sayers. You're listening to The Profile. recently in the UK and I believe it was your first trip outside of Australia since the pandemic Um, and how was it how was the trip and were you able to enjoy any of the Jubilee celebrations? Yeah so we we got just in time for the Jubilee I wasn't able to obviously I think get a ticket or anything like that but we're able to be part of the crowds and we were walking around Buckingham Palace um, uh, so on the outside yeah so it was fun to be in sort of a big event like that you know, we hadn't been around anything like that for some time. So it was it was great to get back to London and sort of get contact with somewhere outside of, you know, just my very small neighbourhood, which I've, I've been in for, had been in for two and a half years before then. So, yeah, it was great to, uh, yeah, be able to partake in that sort of historic event. To what extent does the Queen's sort of faith and example inspire you? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, it's been such a long presence really, when you think about it, do you know what I mean? And not just for my life, but multi-generational. You know, I think about my grandparents, um, you know, she was, both all, all of them have passed on, um, but, you know, we're very aware of her and that example that she's had that whole time. And in some ways, you know, what I've been writing about, sort of a bit of a non-anxious presence in some ways, I think she sort of embodies some of that through many yes. different things. So I've just been thinking about that a bit recently and, and she's maintained that for a long time, you know, often often against public pressure, which is interesting because almost today we want a response, don't we? Um, but there's almost an understanding of her role is is about providing that you know continuity, and I think you know her faith sort of connected to that. Were there any big celebrations in Australia at the, t- at the time of the jubilee? Um, there was a few smaller things, um, but it's definitely um, I think just you've seen since since in the last two years, I think that. There is probably a, a push towards now republicanism that you're seeing not just in Australia, but you know you're hearing more in New Zealand and Canada. And um, our uh, newly formed government uh, set about a republic minister. Um, so there's sort of a process where the new government was sort of trying to honour, but then beginning this process as well, where uh, you sort of wonder that it's happening in the Caribbean and stuff like that um, as well. So yeah, it's interesting to sort of see that's that's the direction. There was a referendum here, maybe. Oh, over a decade ago in which um you know we voted uh, the whole public voted to stay a monarchy but i think there'll be probably another referendum coming up at some stage soon in australia to what extent is life beginning to return back to a semblance of normality uh following the pandemic here in the uk we're i think we're almost there i mean there's a few things that you look and think okay that's a little bit different to what it was a few years ago uh is that the same for australia I think it's different where, where you where you were. So I think the experience of COVID was very different in the country. And I think what was really interesting for Australia is 
Australia was a federation of colonies. So in some ways, before 1901, Australia was like many different, you know, the different colonies operate like different countries. And it was almost like we went back to that, which was really fascinating. I never thought I'd see that. And almost you had your state identity was almost before your national identity, which was really interesting. So I think probably the experience of my state, Victoria, was different to the rest of uh, the country. So most of the country had long periods without COVID. So the COVID zero strategy was very successful in okay. places, you know, would barely touch for two years. You know, there's huge football games and no restrictions because wow. the borders were keeping out, except for one place, Melbourne, <laughs> where I live, which was sort of just had the bad, you know, experience or luck or whatever of having, you know, continued outbreaks. And so we were cut off from the rest of Australia. So sort of like Australia was cut off from the outside world and we had, you know, they called it the ring of steel around us for, for significant periods of time. So I think Melbourne was probably the most affected, um, you know, Sydney as well. There are other places. Mm. So I think Melbourne hasn't hasn't returned as, as it was. I think it's, it's affected, um, you know, people mentally. Um, but then partially there was also a thing that, you know, Australia took its different approach to protect from a, a large death toll, which, you know, I think we're still, us, Japan and New Zealand are the lowest, lowest death tolls. But it's funny, I think we're similar to the UK. Most of the restrictions are gone and things are returning to normal, but we're in winter and there's just a huge way. <laughs> it's like this weird thing, like you can sort of do, you know, go around and do what you want, but then like everyone's getting COVID at the same time. There's sort of this commentary at the moment of like, oh, we've, we've moved beyond it, but it's like getting us at the moment. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a weird in-between thing. So in your new book, uh, An Unanxious Presence, How a Changing and Complex World Will Create a Remnant of Renewed Christian Leaders, you explain that we're in a grey zone. And when did this become apparent to you? And what do you mean by that term? Yeah, well, a grey zone is a term I've, um, I guess, sort of coined, I haven't coined, I've taken it from somewhere else. And it's from modern warfare, where often we've understood when a country's at war and then they're at peace. And sometimes there would be things like declarations of war where congresses or parliaments would declare we're at war and we'd politely send a diplomatic communique telling another country we'd declared, declared war on them. Um, but it was a very clear line between war and peace. But there's increasingly a term of, you know, like what we saw particularly, you know, the start of hostilities in, in Ukraine in 2014 when things began. People didn't know, is this a war? Is it this cyber war? There was sort of, troops without badges turning up in certain installations in the Donbass and Crimea. And the question everyone is asking is, is Russia at war with Ukraine? Initially, the Russians were even denying they were there. They later admitted they were there. And it was like, this is a zone between war and between peace. So that's stuck in my head like a grey zone. And then I realised it was sort of like this period where the world was expecting things to progress. I think particularly from 1989 and the fall of communism, for the world to just progress in this sort of smooth, nice transition to this very connected, peaceful, economic, growing world where things like intolerance would sort of disappear. Um, but then slowly we began to have these sort of shakes or hiccups where there was a sense that, hang on, that's not the way direction was going. You, know, you think of different things like unexpected election results like Brexit or the election of Donald Trump. Uh, terrorism, you know, ISIS taking a huge part of Iraq and Syria, um, COVID uh, coming and, and, you know, stopping the world. And, you know, I began to realise that there was this increased sense of anxiety that actually what we thought was going to be the next era was actually coming to an end. And you'd hear commentators in all different fields from politics to economics, you know, to international relations saying, oh, we're entering into a, something new. What is this? And what I realized is we weren't entering into a new era. There's not a newly defined era. We don't know what the world looks like. And even coming out of COVID, it's sort of interesting. Like coming to London, I was like, ah, oh, I'm back in London. It's really familiar. But then I remember being there on the tube at the end of my trip. And I'm like, I'm on the tube. And it's like 9.30 and the carriages are empty. Like this is weird because it was like a Friday. And like oh, people don't come into the city. You know, so you see... It's same but different. So, like, everything's the same but different. So, it's so like, ah, there's the old, but then there's something new emerging. And even you, you see that, I think, most strongly now in the economy. Um, there's this sense that there's just something really weird going on with the economy, with inflation, which we thought we'd never see again. You know, there's high, high employment 
but you know, sort of where's growth going to be? So it's just this weird in between it. So a gray zone is when one era is ending and one's beginning, but neither have fully disappeared or formed. And we're in the in-between space of those. And how has the pandemic, I guess, hastened that or, or exacerbated that, would you say? Mm. I think it accelerated. I mean, it's a, it's a cliche, but I think cliches are often true. We saw the acceleration of a lot of trends. Um, interestingly, before the pandemic, there was actually already in China beginning to be a move away from cities. Um, in China, as it had created its high-speed rail network and much better internet connectivity, um, you saw a lot of people, because of housing affordability, choosing to actually live in smaller towns outside cities and commuting a couple times a week. So one trend like that you saw was this sort of move away from centralised cities. Um, I think also the pandemic, we had been living in this economic pattern where after the GFC, one of the ways we decided to deal with the global financial crisis was through stimulus and get through that. So we tried that again uh, uh, with the pandemic, but stimulus is now creating inflation. Um, so it's accelerated some of our economic woes. Um, there's some really interesting questions probably too complex to get into now, but you know, questions around did the isolation that Vladimir Putin experienced where he was cut off from a lot of the rest of the elites actually sort of drive him down a particular you know, path towards yeah. the invasion of Ukraine? Um, you know, you look at China and the way China has been integrated with the world, but then it's actually been cut off from the world. And that's now a trend they're pushing into further, whether that's has that exacerbated or existing trends and bringing towards something like a, a Taiwan conflict closer. Um, I think we saw inequality in the world, which has been growing economically. The experience of people who were in the gig economy, living in big cities compared to people who could work from home. Um, issues like that. And we saw a lot of issues that I think we'd sort of papered over, whether it be you know, racism or we're seeing farmers' rights are becoming this big issue around the world now. And that's sort of like now come to the surface because uh, James Meeks, the, the novelist, wrote, uh, I think it was in the London uh, Review of Books, uh, during the pandemic, when you stop moving, you might see what's going on. Sort of like, you know, we've got to see these things that we don't normally look at. So I think it's been this acceleration of all these trends and maybe moved us 10 years down the, the road than what would have taken okay. us if this hadn't happened. So you said that we're in this time between eras and I know these are very difficult things to predict, but how long do you envisage us being in this period? And linked to that, the, this idea of portals, I was at, when I was at Wildfires, you, you talked a little bit about how pandemics can be this portal. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on that as well? Mm. Yeah, Arunda Hati Roy, um, the Indian novelist who wrote the book of God, God of Small Things and now has become an activist in India. Um, she had the comment uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, which she wrote in the Financial Times in March 2020, that pandemics are portals between worlds. And I think it feels a little bit like that. Um, you know, the pandemic took us from the world of 2019 to some other kind of world now. Um, and I, I think really... You know, uh, also, I, ju I just read a book by Peter Zihan, the sort of geopolitical strategist. He, he consults all these businesses in the US military. And, and he says 2019 was the end of this era because it was the height of living standards and humanity is never going to get to that point of living standards again because of energy needs and so on, which we're now experiencing. So we're definitely moving into something. Um, I've wondered if it's, a, if it's a few decades journey. I just mentioned I was in New Zealand with my, my friend Roshan Allpress, who's a who was a historian at, at Oxford, you know, and I talked to him about this and he, he's saying it could be a 150-year period. Um, so, you know, he's sort of looking at these and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Um, so I'm not exactly sure, um, but I don't think it's like two years. You know, I think, yeah. I think we're in a, an economic shift. I think we're in a geopolitical shift. And I think, I think we've been so focused upon culture like, you know, culture war issues, the culture, what's popular culture doing when we don't realise that actually popular culture lies downstream from economics and geopolitics. And I think what's changing is those things and that's going to change the culture. Um, so I think it's, there's, you know, like the rise, like little things that people are not thinking of, like, well, they're not little, but big things like China's GDP, you know, is projected to pass that of the United States. That's a very different global order. Um, if China does move on Taiwan, which today I saw the US um, Defense Department is giving it even more heightened warnings about, that's possibly going to change the world in greater ways than COVID because Taiwan is where so much of the world's semiconductors are made. 
And when your eye's computer goes down and we don't have a semiconductor to replace it, what happens, you know, and the shipping straits from, from Asia, you know, there's all these different things that could significantly change the world. So there's a lot of unpredictability in the air. And I think the world that we're going to be looking at 20 years is going to be a very different one to now. And, you know, I haven't even mentioned climate change um, in all of this as well, which is another, you know, just had 40 degree days in, <laughs> in the UK where we're having really cold, rainy winters unusually for us here in melbourne at the same right, time it's, okay. it's yeah, a lot of disruption happening and, and a major news story this year and you've already alluded to it is the war in uh ukraine uh what societal and cultural shifts are you seeing as a consequence of russia's invasion of ukraine I think it's huge. Um, <clears throat> I think number one, you know, one of the comments people made is, you know, why are we looking at this war? We've had a war in Iraq and we've had a war in Ethiopia. You know, I think part of the reason we're looking at this is, first of all, I think there is truth. We've, we've criminally ignored some of these other conflicts, particularly yeah. conflict in Ethiopia, which is at a huge human cost. Um, but we're also got nu two, you know, we've got nuclear powers now in a land war in Europe, which is not something we've had really since the, you know, the end of World War II, we had conflicts in Yugoslavia, but this is a significant, you know, kind of land war that we thought we wouldn't see. Our, our militaries were changed to not fight wars like this because we thought they were over. Um, but what you really see is I think it's consequential because what it is, is Vladimir Putin is upending the global order. Um, and it's more than just about the war. You know, you're already seeing the countries uh, that are known as the BRICS group, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, South Africa, China, you know, gathering and meeting and talking about creating an alternate economic system. They're inviting countries like uh, Argentina and Iran to join them. Um, so what you could see is we've seen the world as this Western world. We've thought more Western than we realised. And we thought the future was going to be the rest of the world becomes like the West. We're seeing that may not be the case. Um, and I think for Europe, as an Australian, I think, you know, I think it's affected people here. But I think, you know, being in Europe and talking to people in Europe, I think this is a, a huge uh, thing for Europe because, you know, all of a sudden, I think Europe has been able to develop in many ways, particularly, I think, Western Europe because of the significant American military presence, which has meant they haven't had to spend on defence. All of a sudden now there's people, you know, Nordic countries are having to debate having war taxes and spend more of their GDP uh, on, on uh, you know, military uh, expenditure when that's money you can't spend in other areas. And, you know, I think that the sort of threat, there's sort of an existential threat now in, in Europe. And I think the big thing is energy. Um, again, it's going to be an entire podcast. But I think that, you know, this winter and the following winters are going to be really challenging for Europe. And particularly, I think it's going to, the living standards of Europe are going to take a particular hit. And the trend before, I think, you know, you could already see in the world was, you know, if you looked at where are the most modern cities, you know, where the most futuristic cities, they're not in Europe or America anymore. It's, you know, it's Seoul, it's Tokyo, it's Singapore. Um, you know, and I wonder whether this shift from the West to Asia is only going to accelerate potentially, um, you know, this is what this speeds up um, is, you know, one potential. So hugely consequential war. Um, and that's me just talking about the geopolitical consequences. You know, obviously, there's the very human consequences. And, you know, uh, I just think that's it's just an absolute uh, tragedy, you know, what they're going for. And for Russia, I just think, you know, this is, a, you know, <laughs> We, we often have terrible, you know, leaders and, and you know, I think that Russia is, is a, a really important historical country throughout history and filled with some wonderful people. And, and, and I just think, you know, Russia itself deserves better than this. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, a reference point in your book, and I was really intrigued by this, and again, you touched upon this a while ago when I was there, is Krakatoa. Uh, which became this barren land after the volcanic eruption in 1883, I believe it was. But three years later, new life began to emerge. And you said the destruction paradoxically led to a rebirth of life. And where are you seeing seeds of rebirth in the global church today? Mm. I, th I think there's been this definite thing. I mean, a really unusual event was that almost everywhere across the world, Churches stopped for a period. Now, in my context, it was almost two years. You know, it was hard for us to meet. Other places, it was six weeks. Um, but almost everywhere, 
it caused this rethink around faith. And I've had conversations with everyone from people from Africa to Asia, to Europe, to America, um, to Australia, New Zealand, where they saw this thing where there were people who did not come back and there were people who came back differently. Um, ministry, what it looked like changed. And, you know, I, I felt that it was this moment where we had to take a restock and it was very difficult for many churches. Some churches haven't survived. Some churches haven't come back as strongly. Pastors and ministers have, have um, you know, some of them have found it really difficult and, and stepped out. But I saw actually something in the midst of that where there was this almost disconnection where we stepped out of, and even if you were still having, you know, online church, there was something that was still not the same as being in person with people. And it meant people had to take this stock take of what is my faith? What is my faith when the usual stop guards around it that support it socially aren't there? And so I've seen, yes, I've seen, you know, the people that have, um, <coughs> pardon me, walked away, but I've just seen this incredible trend. And I've spoken to people online. I've had people write emails. I got to bump into people in the UK. I've had people come up to me in New Zealand who have just been through a real renewal of their personal faith in the last couple of years. Um, there are people in churches now who weren't Christians at the beginning of the pandemic, um, who weren't, you know, switched on to their faith. And so I see this sort of emergence of really, I think it's a global remnant. And it's like seeds at this stage. I don't think it's been brought together. And I think also at the same time as we've had the pandemic, we've had, you know, we've seen some of the models and answers that we thought were the answers potentially of the church in the 21st century, you know, falling over or spluttering or falling into trouble. So I think there's this sense of people hungering after God, wanting something different. And, you know, I, I actually see hope in the midst of this moment, you know, like I, I look at what was happening before and it was almost accepting a very slow palliative care in some places. And, you know, like I said, there was a virus before the virus. People were coming less and less. Something had to happen. Something, something particularly, I think, in secular countries, uh, something had to happen. And I think God's going to use this to sort of reseed the church. And at the end, you touch upon Iran and the persecuted church there in 1979 after the Iranian revolution. The country was in its own grey zone and churches were widely suppressed, um, but it has seen remarkable growth. And what lessons can be learned from the Persian church, but also the wider persecuted church? Persecution is at unprecedented levels um, where it's impossible to live openly as a Christian in many countries across the world and in those countries such as Iran we're seeing remarkable growth and what lessons can we learn from Iran but also other countries uh, where Christians are being persecuted for following Jesus? Mm. Well I think if, if we think about the past era the past era was had ideologies and myths like every era but I think one of the ideologies or myths was that your life was going to get more comfortable and difficulty was going to be sort of wiped away. And you just saw even public spaces became nicer. And, you know, I think there's shopping malls around here, which has become more and more nice. And there's nicer features and nicer stores and nicer music and nicer food. And it was just like life is getting nicer. It was almost this sort of like ideology of our day. And that came into the church too. Like you think about how we have communicated the faith. There's an element where in a secular age, you want people to come. So we put more and more things on for them. And, you know, look, I've done some of that. So I'm not saying you know, I'm not casting a massive stone here that, you know, I haven't done myself. But I think part of that, what we can learn from churches where there has been suffering is that actually it puts our belief that we believe that we can have faith with just comfort and without difficulty. It questions that, you know, uh, Barna, the, the demographic uh, research group in, in the US did, did a report on millennials called the connected generation. And um, I was part of presenting some of that in, in Malaysia. And one of the things they looked at of the people who are in church uh, in the millennial age group, um, there's a group of sort of habitual Christians. They just sort of come uh, because they have to. And well, what's really interesting is they, if you look at through a sort of you know research-based uh, uh, sort of framework, their lives actually are not biblical. So they're in church, but they're not biblical. Now, what's interesting is that's like 80% or that's a significant percentage of people in the millennial generation who are sitting in churches' lives are not reflecting the scriptures. But there was this group who were called the resilient disciples whose lives actually were biblical when you held them up against the framework. 
Now, what was really interesting is one of the highest uh, countries that had the most resilient disciples was Malaysia. Now, in Malaysia, uh, Christianity is a minority religion. It's a, it's a Muslim-majority country, and there is pressure. It's, it's not like Iran, but there's still pressure um, that comes against the church. And so we see something there, whether it's in the story of Iran or the story of Malaysia at a low level or places like North Korea or many other countries which experience persecution, is that actual pressure, the term I use is pressure creates diamonds. We've wanted diamonds without pressure. And the story, Jesus never promised that we would not experience difficulty. And I think what's happening in the world now, if you think if Peter Zeehan is right, and the world just had this incredible moment where everything was this connected supply chain world, and many of us in the West could have this perfect life, we could press a button and something would appear at our door. And if those supply chains are breaking down and the economic system's breaking down in some ways and the geopolitical order shifting, and if things are going to get more difficult from here on in, um, in some ways that will actually bode better for the church because the church yeah. struggles in really comfortable times. Yeah, yeah. And so I think the good news story is if you think about compost or your garden, it, things grow when things die and break down. And so I think maybe the church is going to look a little bit smaller for a little while, but that's what happens when you cut back your trees yeah. <laughs> just before spring. And, yeah. you know, I think we're in a pruning. And, and yeah. I think that there's a great message. I mean, Iran, very quickly, the Iranian church, people have, have tried to reach, and there's been missionaries for years, but this incredible dislocation that the Iranian people have since 1979, you know, many are sent out in diaspora across the world, has actually seen a revival. That's just remarkable. I think that the stats are something like, you know, more Christians have come, more Iranians have become Christian in the last 10 years, in the last 10 centuries, you know, and, you know, I think we're going to see similar things around the world as we perhaps move into a more difficult time. Um, you know, wish a more difficult time, but the good news is God uses those times to grow us. And I think maybe even there's some people who are listening to this, been through some personal difficult times and felt perhaps isolated. But I think the invitation is how has God used that to build resilience in you, perseverance, perseverance comes character, and from character comes hope. And I think the hope I have at the moment is not in a program in a whiz-bang church somewhere it's actually that God is building character and perseverance in, in, in his people. And that's what's going to give people hope. We need leaders and believers who have that biblical hope rooted in him, not, not the things of the world. I'm loving just the hopeful tone. And you touched upon it earlier in terms of leaders struggling. And here in the UK, uh, Premier Christianity ran an article not so long ago, which highlighted that uh, 40% of clergy in the Church of England uh, said their mental health deteriorated during the pandemic and pastors and leaders are still struggling now, even leaving uh, the ministry. Uh, I've got friends who are just really struggling in, in leadership. And what encouragement can you offer church leaders who are perhaps feeling really burnt out at the moment? Yeah. I mean, two, two things I would say. I was in Christchurch, New Zealand, um, just a couple of weeks ago, I did Auckland, Wellington, New Zealand, uh, Christchurch, the three cities, spoke to leaders there. And I got to Christchurch and I've been talking, you know, we've been talking about the effect of the pandemic and so on. And what was really interesting, it was like a little reframe moment for me where someone said in, in, in Christchurch, oh yeah, COVID, we, we've gone through COVID, but we had a natural disaster before that. We had the Christchurch earthquake, which, you know, damaged many of the churches that had to relocate, you know, and they were basically two things reframed it for me. Number one, I'd not thought of COVID as a natural disaster. <laughs> if all of a sudden there was a massive earthquake that shook the entire world and we'd lost the people that we lost in COVID through the earthquake and the damage to our cities through the earthquake, we would think about it differently. There's something about a pandemic because you can't see it. It's like it never happened, but it did happen. You know, So we've just lived through a natural disaster. And what they said in, in um, Christchurch is when you go through a natural disaster like an earthquake, it'll sometimes take five years to recover. It's not an event, it's a process. So if you're feeling that it's, it's, it's you're tired, if you're feeling that this has been a difficult season, if this has affected your mental health, that is 100% normal for what we've gone through. <laughs> so in a sense, I feel like we need to give ourselves grace that if this was a cyclone, mm. if this was a, a wildfire, if this was an earthquake, we'd be like, okay, We've gone through that and it's difficult. And particularly when you're leading community, what, what natural disasters do is they rip the fibers of community. We see the best and worst in humanity. So I think that's the first point. I think the second point is what's, what I'm finding so interesting. I was literally in a conversation with someone today who was talking about how in schools, 
they can't get people to be principals. They can't get people to be department heads. I'm talking to people in hospitals. No one anymore wants to be the head of that department. What we're actually seeing is in the world is we're seeing what was something that people wanted to do, leadership. And now people are seeing that leadership is not going to be something which fulfills your inner needs to be recognised. That is not going to be something which, you know, provides an existential, you know, re- thing, you know goodies for you. Leadership is sacrifice. And mm. I actually think what's happening is people are realising, hang on, I don't want to be a leader because I thought I'd be the top of the leader and everyone would, th- you know, think I'm fantastic. No, they're actually going to come at you. I think we've now returned to a more realistic view of leadership. You know, like as someone who's written books, spoken at big conferences, I can tell you now, it feeds nothing in me. Like if, if, if you're looking for the wrong things, you're going to have, Jesus said, people are going to criticize you. But, but what is beautiful is reframing leadership as something which is partnering with Jesus as he announces his kingdom, as the kingdom breaks out in the world, as we get to live and follow him. I think there's actually this moment where we need to ask the question, why am I in this? Am I in this to get something for me? Am I in this to perhaps fulfill some kind of need? Or am I here to actually pour my life out for Christ? And that's a question I've had to ask myself. I'm, I'm tired. You know, I'm doing this stuff and writing books and speaking. I'm leading a church at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's been hard. Like people who you, you thought you knew so well and trusted walking away. If that's been your experience, it's hard. That hurts. Mm-hmm. But that's what Jesus experienced. Think about Jesus at the cross. Where's his mates? Like they've gone, you know. And, you know, so I think this is a moment we get to reframe leadership. And what I'm excited about, this moment where the culture is like, okay, we're not going to get anything uh, transactionally from leadership. We now get to showcase servant leadership. We get to be what Henry Nguyen called wounded healers. I think we get to to model in the world um, a biblical sense of leadership and uh, there's something I find, I don't get something transactional from that, but I find the presence of God as he walks with me in the midst of that. I think that's what we need to recenter our vision and model of leadership around. Uh, I'm, I'm intrigued, given your, uh, your sense of ministry, your, your leading senior leader of the, the church there in Melbourne, you, with your writing and podcasts and things like that. I mean, what rhythms do you have in place that help you stay rooted and leaned into the presence of God in, and your life must be very busy. There's a few really key things. The first one is, you know, there's the sort of baseline practices that I have put in. You know, I grew up and my parents, my dad was worked at a, a construction school, like, you know, teaching people to build and, and draftsmen and my mum had different jobs. So my parents were in, in ministry per se, you know, professional ministry. But every morning I would wake up and regardless of what was happening in our family and the seasons of our family's life, you know, they, they would close the door and they would have this time with God, read the scriptures and pray, and then they were present for us. And, you know, that's something I've always uh, taken as, as a real baseline. The second thing is to process, process what God is doing. You know, I talk to my wife, I talk to other people, I have a coach. Uh, you know, I'm like, what's God doing? Like, what's God doing at this time? Having this conversation, again, I learned that from my family, you know, like what, what is God doing at this time and, and try and create that here at Red. The other thing is I realized that <coughs> I'm limited. It's so funny. Like I write, I live on the other side of the world to most of the people who read my books. I can't get on a plane and just do you know, 20 cities. I can do like one or two trips a year. And so everything is limited. But I learned too that when you have limits, you have to be much more strategic. And I think the season we're heading into is not running around like headless chickens doing everything. But God, what are you asking me to do? Yes, I write books, I speak, I do some podcasts. But 90%, this is the last one, 90% of it is I'm just a guy doing ministry in a local area. And Mm. I just feel more and more this sense that I keep thinking about Genesis 1. It's in the book. It's just been so present for me that verse of the unformed earth and then there's the holy spirit hovering over it the spirit's hovering over the waters is the moment before creation and i find it interesting that in the scriptures the first people who have the holy spirit fall on them are the craftsmen they're the people who are taking the raw materials of the earth and sweating and wrestling with that the presence of god comes upon them so for me you know i've got an issue with my kids when i'm dealing with a pastoral thing at work when there's something that my family's dealing with not seeing that as a, a vacation from this presence and I've got to go up a mountain and just spend time with God. They're lovely. Great to do that when you can. 
but actually the Holy Spirit is, is, is glorying over you when you're sweating with the raw materials of creation in your family life? Is that difficulties at work? Is it financial worries? In the midst of that, when we bring that before God, I think that's what humans are built to do. That, that's, that's us being stewards and showmen of creation, taking creation, subduing it, bringing God's presence into the world, multiplying and bringing flourishing. So I think that that's what I see now. Whatever difficulties I have, that's an invitation to step into a, a deeper life. You know, I think it's, um, is it Rollheiser in Domestic Ministry talks about, you know, the mother who, the, you know, is not, the, the monks would have the bell to pray, but the mother who's in, you know, young child's time and the, you know, the cry of their babies, like their, their bell ringing, you know, and I think that very domestic sense of, of God's presence is, is something that I've learned to bring in there. Um, and just being ordinary, like being an ordinary person, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to be this, like, God uses ordinary people, but also have an ordinary life to watch the football or have a meal and just mm. be normal is, is I think a really key thing as well. Um, yeah. You don't have to be a superhuman. What sort of things um, do you enjoy doing to unwind? Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, enjoy just cooking is, is one thing I do like football, um, <laughs> watch football, you know, just stupid comedies and, and just spending time with people. I like walking and I think I enjoy part of the Melbourne here. Right? There's lots of nature and stuff like that, which is great where I live and just getting, I think getting in touch with nature and just there's one of the things I do too, is like there was during the pandemic, there's this small park, which is what it used to look like around here before it became sort of urbanized. And I just would go in there. The pandemic, I would go in there because that's one of the few things you could do and just stop and realise the rhythms of nature that have always been there, that thousands of years ago, this is what it looked like. And so I think that's one of the things I enjoy to do, just sort of stop and connect with, hang on, I'm here. What are the birds yeah. doing? Yeah. What sounds can I hear? What's the wind doing? That's really helpful. I enjoy doing that. I was recently listening to uh, an episode of your pod, your church's podcast, Rebuilding. And it was the one where you were talking about the, how to be discerning when uh, watching and reading and listening to the news. And you were talking about the drama unfolding at number 10 and everything that's going on there. And I was really intrigued to get your thoughts on that. And you may have seen that a sermon by um, the founder of uh, Street Pastors, Reverend Les Isaac, uh, appeared to inspire Savage Javid to leave government. Um, he was the, the the reverend was talking about integrity and that seemed to fit a, a wider longing i think within government and certainly within the country for integrity and, and character in in our leaders and to what extent do you think this crisis will be a landmark moment in uk politics mm. I, I really hope so i think that <coughs> what what was unique because a lot of people have been comparing donald trump sort of final days in office to to what's happening in 10 Downing Street. I think it's different. I mean, maybe there's some similarities, but I think what's different is the Republican Party in many ways was behind Trump, a lot of it, and he's almost taken over the party. But what was so unusual is when your own party, you know, does a, does a sort of, you know, rebellion against you. And I think that was, that was a mark, I think, of even when the closest allies that you've had see a lack of integrity, but I also think that there was almost a point where the pushing of the lines of integrity got to a breaking point, particularly, I think, with the parties around um, you know, Partygate. And I think I remember, I remember watching before that happened, I thought this is going to be a slow release thing. But I think, you know, particularly in Parliament, hearing some of the MPs share who you know, couldn't be with their parents when their parents passed mm. because of the COVID laws. I remember seeing that and just thought there's something human about that where I thought he was done. And I, I thought it would take time. And I think that, that someone, you know, like leadership is so based on trust and integrity. Um, and I think there was that moment where it was like people will let leaders get away with a little bit, but that was such a fundamental break of you're not, we're going to, we will do the ultimate for the country. And almost that sort of like blitz, you know, like call, you know, blitz call to arms, to, together we sacrifice. But when a leader doesn't, sacrifice you've crossed a line there and again too this this comes back to i guess my sort of framework of renewal you know crisis precedes renewal and i think when it gets pushed so far and there seems to be such a lack of integrity 
I wonder whether we're moving from a period of a certain kind of very charisma-driven leadership where people want someone who can suck up airwaves, get lots of social media chatter, win elections. Um, but I wonder whether, particularly in Britain, that has now passed. And my hope is that people will again uh, uh, you know, seek uh, leaders of um, integrity. It may be a little bit of a cycle or two more for that to happen. Um, but I think you're right. There is, there's, from my, you know, and I follow British politics sort of fairly closely, I think that there seems to be a hunger for a different kind or an older kind of leader, a leader of integrity um, uh, to sort of emerge. So it's going to be interesting. Whether it's going to happen straight away, I'm not sure. Um, but, yeah, I think the hunger is there in the public. Because almost you, you, you it, don't know what you're missing until it goes, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Like it's like, yeah. And I, I think it goes back to what you said earlier around, um, you know, that drive towards leadership that people once had is is, is maybe not so that there so much because of the, perhaps the cost involved in that. And I wonder whether to a, to an extent we are seeing that in in uh, in governments and and leadership and, and that kind of thing. And it will be in, it'll be really fascinating to see how. We look up, look upon this moment in years to come. How has the what's been going on here in the UK politically been observed in Australia? Yeah, I mean, I think I think people were fascinated in Boris because he, you know, in a way, say they weren't in David Cameron because he is that media figure. He cuts through. He cuts through internationally. He sort of, you know, had the hair, and he was almost an epitome of sort of the British yeah, yeah. eccentric. You know, he, he yeah. played up on that. So, you know, people were really interested. They were following the story closely you know but I think the sense in people talking to here was you know he was gone and and I think the similar response to I think the UK that people had felt he'd crossed the line and when you're you know we had we had leaders ask a lot of us as a country too and you know if, if that was us and our leaders who you know, like I think of our state premier who had you know quite significant sacrifices asked of us if we discovered something similar I think there would have been a huge outcry so I think the, the feeling here was very similar, that a line was crossed. Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favour right now? It will take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. Um, I'd be intrigued, um, given your uh, given you're based in Australia. Um, the this year has seen Hillsong Church come under increasing scrutiny and criticism. And what's your take on where the mega church now finds itself? And are there any lessons to be learned for the wider church, not only in this particular situation, but from other situations where the behaviour of high-profile leaders within the church has come under the spotlight? Yeah, I think I think a couple of things. I'd almost pass those <clears throat> two things out. I think um, we've seen a number of scandals, um, some more high profile than others. You know, around you know really what you call sort of toxic leadership behaviour. Um, and I think some of the commentary is, oh, this is happening in the mega church. But my experience is happening. I'm seeing it in house churches. I'm seeing it in churches which are more conservative. I'm seeing it in churches which are less conservative. Um, so I think this is part of the, the greater issue we've talked about just then with integrity. Um, mm. You know, are we looking at a kind of leadership which is more based around charisma or a leadership that's based in integrity? And I would you know, say integrity is always, particularly in the church, I would also say in the culture, but, you know, like the best kind of integrity is going to flow from, I think, the person of Jesus and, and learning from the person of Jesus. Um, I do think, though, then the second question, I guess, with sort of mega churches is as well is, Something I've been thinking about is discipleship capacity, you know, that ultimately the church um, is something which is called to disciple people. And I think what we've been able to do is we've been able to gather people at scale. Um, but I'm wondering now in this season what the pandemic has perhaps shown us is that we've not been able to disciple, disciple people deeply at scale. And, you know, I think that's a question that a lot of megachurches need to struggle with. Mm. Um, but then I wouldn't say, so I, I know some megachurches where the leaders are just people of total integrity. And I know smaller churches where there's dealing with toxicity. Those, even those places with leaders of great integrity need to do with that discipleship at scale issue. Um, so I think there's two issues there, but I'm, I'm not. Some of the commentary which says mega equals 
toxicity, I don't buy that. I think there's toxicity at multiple levels, but there is an issue of looking at how do we disciple people at scale. Um, yeah, just a little nuance. It reminds me of like conversations I've had with uh, friends and uh, I've been, I'm involved in a church as, as well. And many Christians have been hurt and are even sort of even deeply suspicious of the church and come, come away from it. Um, do you have any sort of good good tips for sort of reaching out to those people that are that are deeply suspicious of the church? Is it a case of just living that life of integrity and, and character and just praying and uh, that, that God will just bring healing and, and and draw them back into the church? Again, this this is one of the really key discernment things of dealing with our culture today. I think because we live in such an incredibly diverse culture. There's an incredible diversity of experiences. And often what we'll do is we'll talk about an issue and we'll then expect the issue to speak to the entire diversity of those people. People who have been deeply wounded in churches and all kinds of really terrible abuse. Um, and, you know, how do you sort of, you know, be that person of integrity and show that the church does something different? You know, I, I see Pope Francis is traveling to Canada, I think as, as we record this to uh, almost, you know, offer penance to, uh, you know, the Indigenous First Nations uh, groups of Canada and that's sort of him trying to step into that space of, of healing mm. and, and being a person mm. of integrity. Uh, at the same time, mm. I hear some of this language then used from people. I've sat down with people who say they hurt by the church and, and in some ways the story doesn't, it's like they were almost um, offended because they stepped into a kind of discipleship community where things were asked of them and then they walked away. So it's, I'm finding it really hard when I hear the breadth of these stories. Um, you know, it's like the word, you know, I, I think about, you know, like there's a really interesting cultural conversation around trauma, which is really important, you know, and I've had that conversation with people who have been in war and been had their parents tortured and have been refugees and, and the effect of trauma on them. But then I'm hearing the same words mm. and concepts from someone who's like, oh, my boss was like asking me to write this report really late. And, and, you know, that happened a few times and I'm still having trauma from it. And I'm like, how do we use, how are we using these one word for this incredible breadth? So I sort of feel like there needs to be nuance. I'm seeing two, I'm seeing two things happening at once, if that makes sense. Genuine things that really need to be wrestled with. But then also a use of the word, which I think is perhaps a little bit elastic as well. Um, wow. So... Yes, that, that's an observation. I'm not exactly sure how to deal with it all. Maybe, maybe that's you know just the need of discernment in, in this time. Um, it's it's almost like words get leveraged and are pushed beyond their mileage, which I think actually does a disservice to the people who are genuinely trying to use those words. I uh, I get a sense that despite sort of everything that's going on in the world, and there, there is a lot that's concerning people and, and bringing people that that you're excited about the possibilities that this season will bring and what's your challenge and what's your encouragement to to the church today yeah i, I think that there is a, a moment of incredible opportunity for the church um i think we're coming up to one of those moments of possible real turnaround uh you know i've often said crisis precedes renewal is sort of one of the you know maxims i, I repeat ad nauseum but probably at this moment, I'd add crisis precedes renewal if. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, it's like if we do certain things, you know, if we, I think, push into him, if we have humility, you know, I think particularly the piece you, you, you mentioned around listening to the persecuted church and church in the whole world, you know, our experience isn't the only experience. You know, the mm. stories of the West, you know, particularly the US, particularly in the English world, it dominates the, the, the conversation. Um, you know, I've done one thing which is fascinating at different times is, is, and people can try this. On social media, you can actually choose to, like on Twitter, block out certain things. So, like, I will sometimes set my, set Twitter, my Twitter to, like, be in Indonesia or be somewhere else. And you get all of the algorithms okay. for other countries. And it's fascinating because you just start to see different stories. And, um, okay. and you know, I, I encourage people to listen to the, the broader global stories. The Western story is not just the only story in the world. Um, and so, you know, I think that the church finds itself at a huge axial moment in the culture. But those axial moments where there's intense globalization, economic upset, the geopolitical order is upside down. There's war, there's pandemics, <laughs> it's all these things. 
they're at the moments when God so often turns things around. And, you know, so I think let's prepare, let's pray, let's contend, let's prepare our hearts. Let's look for those who have similar hearts. And, um, yeah, let's look at the good God is doing in the world at this time. Um, so, yes, I'm excited. You know, I, I just keep bumping into people who have a heart at the moment that God's going to do something. You find those people. Uh, that's the seeds that God's placing in the world. Amen. One very final question. Uh, this week sees the last episode of Neighbours. Uh, it's going to be broadcast in the UK on Friday and it's been a cult hit here in, in the UK uh, will be sorely missed and it's based in Melbourne uh, which is where you are uh, Mark and so as the credits roll on the final episode there will be uh, there'll be many shedding a tear will you be one of them I, I won't be shedding it's, it's funny so literally Neighbours is not far from where I am recording right now so it's actually not super far from my house uh, where actually Neighbours is filmed it's probably a five minute drive in fact oh, I wow. remember a few years ago I was at Spencer Street Station or uh, Flinders Street Station in the city and there was these like three English girls with a map and they're like how do I get to Ram they're, like trying to work out how to get to Ramsey Street and I thought I can just just come with me I can drive you and that's probably a bit weird um, <laughs> but um I, you know I have not watched it for years and years and years like since the 80s or something like that but I, I do think it is this sort of weird sense in Australia I think it sounds weird Shane Warne's passing and then I think Neighbours, it sort of like it feels like something sort of ending. Um, and, and, you know, I was talking to some people at a, at a dinner the other night and none of us have watched it for 20 years. But everyone was sort of like, will you watch it? And we were sort of like, oh, I might actually watch that. Just to sort of, yeah, the, they're going to bring everyone back. Like, how do they do that? That's my that's my question. How do you bring yeah, yeah. all these people? Uh, I think they're saying Margot Robbie's coming back. There's like all these yeah. stars coordinate them to be in Melbourne at the same time. It's going to be very interesting. And how do they end it all? Who knows? So... It is end of an era. Um, uh, yeah, fascinating. Fascinating yeah. end of uh, cultural. Uh, absolutely. I think here in the UK, there'll be, I mean, it's, it has a strong legion of fans, but those, I, I haven't watched it in many years, but I did watch it growing up and I will be watching it. And I and it'll be intriguing to see how they, how they end it. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. I feel so hopeful and, and encouraged. Um, uh, listening to you and talking with you and uh, reading your, your stuff and your podcast and it's just been a real pr privilege to to chat to you so thank you so much really really appreciate it oh thank you it's been an absolute pleasure you've been listening to the profile in association with premier christianity magazine